This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's up, man? Oh, not much. It's a good day. It's yeah? a good day. Yep. We are recording this on a Saturday, and uh, that means college football. It's exciting that college football's back on, huh? It is. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said it's been too long since we've had college football because his phone no longer uh, recognized the word Heisman. <laughs> That's funny. All right, so talk to us a little bit about uh, your sermon this past Sunday, or this past week. Yeah, so we were in Romans 14, and uh, this is a very famous letter of Paul's, right? I mean, people have been studying this letter forever. And it's probably, not probably, but it is the most like theologically advanced mm-hmm. uh, or maybe systematic of all of Paul's letters. And um, really got interested in this because a guy named Scott McKnight wrote a book called Readings, Reading Romans Backwards. And the general premise is that you get the main context of the story uh, of the letter beginning in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And there are a lot of things that we find out as readers of the letter in those final chapters that we don't know from the context of the letter until we get there, but the hearers would have known and identified that context almost immediately. Right. And so uh, I really think Scott's right about this. And so you get this, uh, Scott brings up, and, and it shows up in different places, but you get this dichotomy of the strong and the weak. Mm-hmm. And it's this differentiation of two people groups. And what ends up happening is about the time that Romans is written, the emperor of Rome exiles all the Jews. So he kicks them out of Rome. Okay. And so the Jews are exiled from Rome for five years. Okay. In Romans 16, I mean, Romans chapter one, Paul says to the house churches that are in Rome. So we've got a multiplicity of locations and they're all meeting in homes, very similar to what we do at Walls. Right. And so when they're all there together, you've got this Jewish Gentile mix here. So you've got um, a lot of unity, but really no uniformity. Right. Because the Jews are coming to it with, uh, you know, a Jewish background. So they're still going through the Torah they're still observing food rituals. Like they still have that kind of old Testament pack, that old Testament mindset and package. Mm -hmm. Well, when they get expelled from Rome, there's nobody left to keep that. Right. Right. So now you just got a bunch of Gentiles who don't know all that stuff. Five years is quite a long time for development of something that's in its early infancy like that. Right. Right. So the church has only been around you know, roughly 30 years at this point. So with that, uh, when something's only 30 years old, five years of time is a a lot lot to change. Yeah. 
And so when the Jews come back, they come back to uh, a gathering that looks radically different than the one they left. Right. All the Jewish influence is gone. Right. And there's just nothing left um, for those who are Jewish and want to keep Jewish tradition or customs. And so we get this setting um, kind of set in chapter 14. And it, it now makes sense when you know that background, why food is such a big conversation throughout uh, the whole letter. Right. As you've got chapter eight and chapter 10 talking about food, it makes a whole lot more sense why you have five through seven. Right. Where you have death and Adam, but life in Christ. Right. And that that extends from Christ to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Right. So it, when you read it this way, it makes a whole lot more sense systematically what's what's happening here. But here in chapter 14, we see this kind of come to a head um, because Paul begins uh, in verse 13. He says, let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another. So apparently, if somebody says, let us no longer, mm-hmm. That means you were doing it at one point. Right. Right. So we got a lot of judgment here. And probably what it is, it's a clash. Mm. The Jews come back and they're judging the Gentiles for not having more Jewish influence in their gatherings. And the Gentiles are judging the Jews for coming in trying to change stuff. Right. Like, dude, we've been making it along just fine without you for five years. Like, we can't be doing it all the way wrong. How similar is it to, to where we're at right now with the church? Uh, in what regard? In, in all regard, right? Like people are, are changing things from what we know from cultural Christianity, right? And, and fundamentalism. Yeah. And, and so it's just, it's, it's crazy to, to, to see how we're, yeah. how there are people judging the people who do things the way that things were quote, always supposed to be done. Yeah. And those people are also judging the people who are trying who are trying to tra- change things, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's similar to that, but not fully apples to apples. Okay. Because I think the difference would be that those changes that are happening in the church, right? They've gradually been happening over the last twenty years, right? Um, and and to some, like you know, liberal theology's influence and and how that affects things has been happening for you know about a hundred years, right? So you got some elements of that, but, but this is radically, it's almost like if you had a group of people that were worshiping together and one day just like 30% of your congregation gets added to, Mm. like you add 30% more to your congregation and they're all just super royally pissed off at how you're worshiping. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit different because it's, it's much more of like a, a punch in the face. Right. Okay. At this point, rather than a, a, kind of gradual conversation change. Mm, Okay. But so these people are apparently judging one another. And so Paul says, don't do that anymore. Instead, resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. So I think this is so interesting that he says this about a stumbling block. It's, um, you know, it's translated here as a stumbling block, but it's, um, the Greek word is scandalon. So, um, to some extent we get our word scandal from this, right. but it, it, it literally means, um, 
obstacle mm. means like this thing that now stands in the way of something. Right. What is judgment doing? I mean, it's it's keeping people from growing and, and yeah, changing. So, and so, yeah, so if if we're looking at a path from A to B, mm. what when we do, so if A is where we are, our right. starting place, and B is where we're trying to get, where is where are we as Christians trying to get to? I mean, we're trying to 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 get to holiness, trying to get to the kingdom of God. Right? Yeah, we're trying to get to where we look more like Jesus. Right. Right. We're trying to uh, ascend to God likeness. Right. right? That, that's what our goal is here. And so when Paul says your judgment makes you a stumbling block, so don't do it. Resolve mm. not to be a stumbling block. What, what are you actually stumbling? Like what, where are you inserting yourself as an obstacle in between someone's direct relationship with Jesus? Mm. Um, you know, I've heard this passage preached a whole lot, mm. but the stumbling block as I've always heard it explained is like, you're just putting an obstacle in front of them, but there's no, there's no direct correlation in those sermons about where they're trying to go. Right. Right. Cause you can just be wandering around in the desert and, trip on a rock and okay, you get back up and keep going. Right. But in a, in a stumbling block and in a scandal on you, you literally become a barrier. Mm. Your judgment become a, can become a barrier to someone, um, in their ascent to Christ. So it's, it would be comparable today as to like somebody coming to a church, um, to a, to a let's just use like a really fundamental church because it, it's easier to to use this uh, comparison. But um, somebody who goes to a really fundamental church and they come in covered in tats and piercings and they're trying to pursue Jesus and in, in that relationship, and then they feel judged and so they turn around and never come back to church. Yeah, so that could be an example. Um, you know. Um, LGBTQ individuals mm. um, can be another example. And just, I mean, maybe a little bit more at home for people. If someone showed up to a service drunk, mm. right? Yeah. And clearly they have a problem and they happen to the church for help and we judged them. Right. Right. Well, that's not the place I'm going for help anymore. Right. I mean, all of these things. And, and this is why I say, this is why I said in, in, the sermon that, that judgment in its very nature is selfish mm-hmm. because you never judge someone for the thing that you would possibly do. Right. Right. We, what are the cardinal sins for like conservative fundamentalist churches? It's like, Oh, you know, homosexuality, pedophilia, right? Mm-hmm. Like all, all these types of things, uh, solicitation, prostitution, right? All these types of things because murder, because they're the things that I myself would never do. Right. But like, oh, you can be just a really terrible person and be mm-hmm. mean to your wife yeah. or to your spouse. And like, we'll let you in church leadership. Right. Right. It's like we judge people based on the thing we would never do. Right. And so the things that we would do, we don't judge people for because we do them. So like if we hold them to a standard, we have to hold ourselves to a standard. So all we do is we judge people and hold people that do heinous things things that we would never do to a standard that we ourselves would never put on ourselves. Right. And so I think it's really interesting that Paul brings this up here. Cause he's like, when, when you judge someone, right. So the, the Greeks are judging the Jews because they're expressing themselves in a form of 
Christian faith that the Gentiles don't do mm. and vice versa. So they're both judging people for the thing that they would never do. And Paul says, look, you're both becoming a stumbling block to one another in your judgment because now you're questioning when you look at different expressions and you judge them for their expression, you now make them question their relationship. Mm. Mm. And so Paul goes on and he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, this is, um, this brings up an interesting point or a question here. So in, in the direct context when Paul uses this word unclean, he's talking about food. Right. Right. Remember all the Jewish food laws or food rules that they had. So when Paul says unclean, he's talking about, you know, don't eat pork. Right. But can you imagine a Jew showing up to church uh, in like an afternoon and they got a, a whole pork on roast, right? Like it, it, it probably unappealing to a Jew that, sure. that that's happening. And then, so he uses this word unclean, but he says nothing is unclean unless someone deems it unclean or anyone thinks it unclean. Now, when something is unclean for a Jew, what does that mean? If you eat something unclean, what have you done? I mean, you've sinned. Okay, so in the immediate context, we're talking about food. Right. Right. But in a much broader context, we're talking about sin. Right. So to some extent, this means that sin is subjective. There are elements of sin that are objective and fixed and absolute. Sure. Right. So doing anything against the image of God, harming an individual, assault, mm -hmm. these types of things. Uh, I think God is very clear about how he wants us to conduct ourselves with speech and mm -hmm. attitudes of generosity and love. Um, but to another point, I think other elements of sin are subjective. Sure. Um, and some of our listeners that grew up in fundamentalism like us, they might be going, wait, sin can't be subjective. Right. But I think sin is subjective to some extent. Uh, now, like I said, there are things that are fixed, but there are things that are not fixed and therefore come with some subjectivity. And I'll give you a very easy example of how this plays out. Most people would say lying is a sin. Sure. Right? But it's a subjective sin because if I lie to my wife to hide the Christmas present that I got from her, nobody would say that's sin, even though I've lied. Right. Right? Now, people could always say, oh, well, it's the intent of your heart, that kind of thing. Well, maybe. Right. But uh, at an open level, that makes sin subjective. Right. Based upon context context is important in determining if something is sin. Sure. So in the same way, in this context, when we think about this, these people are expressing themselves based on their backgrounds. Right. Right. So 
someone from certain backgrounds might view something as sin that someone from another background might not. A great example of this is if someone grew up with alcoholism present in their nuclear family, they might view drinking as sin. Sure. But for someone else who grew up where the family drank, you know, a couple of glasses of wine, you know, they were very moderate with it. Uh, it was a social gathering. It's a way that they connected. Uh, well, maybe in that experience, drinking is not a sin. Yeah. Right. So I think it's important to remember that, that, that sin is to some extent subjective to the context. Sure. There are sins that are absolute and fixed, but there's a lot of subjectivity in sin. And what that means is you have no idea where someone is on their path. So because you have no idea where they are on their path, you have no right to judge them. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, the common example is, uh, you know, you got someone recovering as a crack addict And so they're trying to give up crack, but you catch them smoking a cigarette outside your church parking lot and you judge them. You're like, oh, that's a heinous person over there because I would never smoke a cigarette. I'm an uppity up. Right. Right. So it's like, oh, okay, but you have no idea where they came from. Right. You have no idea what they're trying to overcome. Sure. This is why we shouldn't be a stumbling block. And this is why sin is subjective because we have no idea where someone is coming from. We have no idea what their background is. We have no idea what their context is. And so something that may be sin to you may not be sin to somebody else or something that may be heinous to you might be a huge improvement for someone else. So in the nicest way possible, we should all keep our mouth shut and let Jesus be the judge. Absolutely. And I think this is why it's so important here to catch Paul uh, in verse 15 He says, if your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So don't don't let your person and your actions, once again, immediate context, food. Don't let your actions interfere with someone's relationship with Christ. And specifically, Paul puts it in context of the cross. And notice, when I've heard this text preached in the past, it's not about how you're affecting the other person. Right. It's always like, oh, you don't be a stumbling block because that could be more sin for you. Right. But it's like, in, in Paul's mind, the way you act can cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died, your actions, your judgment can potentially turn someone away from a life in Jesus. Because whether we want to acknowledge it or accept it, the truth of the matter is people make up things about God based on how they see the people of God acting. Mm. And so if they see a judgmental people of God, they're going to make up that God is a judgmental God. If they see a people of grace, they're going to think that God is a God of grace. We make up about God based upon how we see the people of God acting. So if we say, if we look at the people of God and we say, man, they're just so full of judgment, why wouldn't we just naturally assume that their God is judgmental? Right. So in the same way, when, when someone's struggling 
and someone's seeking healing and we judge them, they go, well, man, if I can't, if I can't measure up to those people, I'm never going to measure up to their God. He's just naturally God is higher in the hierarchy. So this is why I believe that it's so vital that we at Wellhouse uh, practice being a people of grace. Sure. Because um, that's who I see God being. Yeah. And we, especially living in the South and being in a traditionally conservative denomination, um, it's very easy for us to get judgmental. Absolutely. And that's that's what our reputation has been in the past. Um and I just see it so countercultural to what is recorded in scripture. Yeah. And now this is important to note. You know, we're talking about judgment and being judgmental, but would you say that it, it's fair that we all judge somebody, some group of people? Right? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, some extent. Would. Right, we we all judge some group of people. Yeah, it we're not condemning anybody for being judgmental. However, you need to stop. You need to try to stop being so judgmental. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's um, important. We're not condemning you for being judgmental, but it is something that we need to work against. Absolutely. Um, everybody judges somebody, right? Even if you're not Christian. Um, or don't have religious um, dichotomies and things. Republicans judge Democrats, or Democrats judge judge Republicans. Yeah, yeah. capitalists judge socialists. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you always have a category um, of where you judge someone because once again, they do the thing you would never do. Right. Um, and so, yeah, everybody judges somebody, but the important part is. You should be working to stop mm-hmm. like that's that's just the truth of the matter if you're a christian and you believe in the the god and jesus that we believe in uh we should seek to be kind absolutely we should seek to be generous and we should seek to be people of love and grace uh, and mercy mm-hmm. and so we should work to not be judgmental and second even if you are judgmental uh how is that being expressed how's the other person receiving your judgment um because I can judge someone quietly in my head or I can be a jerk about it and let them know that I'm judging them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a couple things um, to stop being so judgmental that, that it's really important. Um, one, you can educate yourself on where they're coming from. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and a part of that, you have to start by being relational with the person. Right. Oh, yeah, you absolutely sure. have to talk with them. Talk with them as a person, yeah, you know, and, and learn their background and then go and do research, right, about yeah. their background, where they come from. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point because, you know, at Wellhouse, our first value is to be real. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that we want that is because we grew up in traditions where judgment was really forefront. And so people felt like they couldn't be their real, authentic self because they would get judged for it. Yeah. And so we want people to be real because God made you a certain way. God placed you in a certain context with a certain background to make a certain impact upon his kingdom. 
And so we don't want you to have to hide that. We want you to be the real authentic you. And if we can't be, then there's a problem. And so that's where being relational comes into it. To some extent, being real and being relational are not that far removed because you can't be relational without being real and you can't be real without being relational Mm because you're only real in a context of a conversation or a group of people, right? It's one thing for you to be real at home by yourself, but like, who are you being real to Yeah, yourself? I mean, you know, your own self being real is being real to those around you and being relational is being real with those that you're in relationship with. You know, and the things that um, people are judged for are typically things that they feel shame for a lot of times. Um, Oh, you're saying like when we judge someone, they already have shame about that thing? Right. Yeah. And and Dr. Brene Brown, um, she's a a social work storyteller, researcher. Um, She's incredible. And, And she talks about the idea that guilt is I made a mistake. But shame is I am the mistake, yeah. right? And we all have that. And it's really important to remember before you judge somebody else, think about what it is and they p- probably already feel shame for it. So don't pile it back on top of them, right? Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, so the way I like to say it is guilt says I've done a bad thing. Shame says I am a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And we see it. We see it in Genesis 3. At the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Mm-hmm. But at Genesis 3, the very first thing that happens after they eat that, that fruit, mm-hmm. they cover their body. Yep. They are ashamed and they cover their body. Mm-hmm. They're not feeling guilt. No. They're experiencing shame. They are a bad thing in their own mind. Right. Right. Now, God restores them. Right. They cover themselves with leaves. And God says, well, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to make you some out of like something of substance, right? Out of animal hide. Yeah. And so I think that's a good point that it, when we judge people, they probably are already experiencing shame. I mean, there's a good chance. I mean, to some extent, like you talked about in fundamentalism, if somebody shows up with tattoos and piercings, maybe they're not experiencing shame. That may just be how they express themselves. Yeah, but. that may just be who they are. And that's cool. Um, but especially like in the LGBTQ situation, they, I don't know if shame is maybe what they would be experiencing, but at least society already does a good job of shaming them. Yeah. Uh, and the church probably isn't the place where we need to lump that on. Absolutely not. Um, and cause that's the, that's the other thing that I think is important uh, to remember here is that Paul puts this in a context of salvation, right? Um, so Paul says, you know, don't, don't interfere or ruin what Christ has died for. I mean, every single person, whether they look goofy to you or not, is made in the image and likeness of God and beloved by God. Yeah. And so with all the love a pastor can have, well, house church, please keep your mouth shut. (laughs) don't judge people be kind be generous be gracious be merciful be loving that's the community that we want amen well thanks for talking to us man absolutely it was a lot of fun